children and welcome to Avant-Garde Book Storytime. I'm Cherie Hardy and it is always a pleasure to read to you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. Today, I am going to do part two of a book that I read yesterday, Schwamberg, The Man Who Built a Library. This book was written by Carol Boston Weatherford, and it was illustrated by Eric Velasquez. If you have this book, you know what to do. Please feel free to follow along with me, but if you don't, it's quite okay. Get in a very comfortable place and just get relaxed and listen to Tromberg, The Man Who Built a Library. Arturo Schromberg was becoming quite the collector. He nabbed two volumes by Paul Cuffey, an early American whaler, shipbuilder, and maritime trader whose fleet sailed the United States Atlantic coast to the Caribbean and to Europe. On ships he built, Cuffey and his crew whaled in the waters of the Atlantic. This was dirty and dangerous work, but necessary. First, harpoons flew, and later blubber was rendered into the whale oil for lamps to light growing cities. Paul Cuffey was one of the richest black men in early America. He could afford to speak his mind. Cuffey wrote a petition that free blacks should be able to vote since they paid taxes, and he was the first to float the back to Africa idea. He could see free blacks and freed slaves settling in Sierra Leone someday. Cuffey sailed there, set foot on West African soil to judge if his new society might root. At the White House, he reported that his dream to send one vessel to Africa each year held promise. In Cuffey, Arturo found a forerunner to Marcus Garvey, the Harlem Renaissance leader who preached black pride and self-help, and like Cuffey a century earlier, a return to Africa. In the 1920s, Arturo supported Garvey, his newspaper, Negro World, and his Black Star steamship line. As the Garveyites paraded town in Harlem, 125th Street, in plumed hats and tassels, tasseled brass button uniforms, did Cuffey's voyages cross Arturo's mind? At a bank by day, Oturo rubbed shoulders with Alan Locke, dubbed the father of the Harlem Renaissance. As he corresponded with Booker T. Washington, founder of Tuskegee Institute, and W.E.B. Du Bois, an Atlanta University professor and the first African American to earn a doctorate from Harvard, the two disagreed about whether to push for social or economic progress, but they agreed that black history could be a bridge. Oturo's acquaintances were the who's who of the Harlem Renaissance. He was invited to the first meeting of an informal guild of young black writers. Poets, County Cullen, and Langston Hughes were members. So was novelist and poet Jesse Redmond Fawcett, an editor of the NAACP magazine, The Crisis, and the African-American children's magazine, The Brownies Book. These writers joined Arna Bonton, Georgia Douglas Johnson and artist Aaron Douglas in asking Oturo to hunt for historic references they could 
water the seeds of creative and scholarly endeavors. His collection, Fertile Soil, for growing black pride when it came to digging up rare finds and obscure facts, Arturo had what poet Claude McKay called a bloodhound's nose. Arturo loaned not only books to students, artists, and writers, he also lent interpretations, insights, and sometimes cash. With book lists full of texts that Schromberg found, his friends mined blackness and broke new ground. Busy, always busy, said Fernando of his father, Arturo Schromberg. He was gone, traveling on lecture tours or collecting missions for what seemed like eight months each year. And when he was home in Brooklyn, he was out most evenings for club and lodge meetings. His visiting children lived among the countless books in his collection. His only daughter, Dolores, greeted artists and scholars who came by to view his growing library. Arturo's wife, Elizabeth, fought to carve out living space for the family, but that was a losing battle. Her efforts to clean his desk also in vain. When she cleared the clutter to dust, he complained that important references were misplaced. She finally left well enough alone. Writer and researcher. Arturo Schromberg aimed to prove Africa's, Africans' place in world history. In Harlem, he joined the Men's Sunday Club, which grew into the Negro Society of Historical Research. The society sponsored lectures and galas, and in its first year, amassed more than 300 books and manuscripts. Otero stored that collection at his home alongside his own. He was also president of the American Negro Academy and grand secretary of the all-black Prince Hall Grand Masonic Lodge and he served on the committee to start a Negro division at the Harlem branch of the New York Public Library. Civic-minded, but no social climber, he skipped the fame parties of the Roaring Twenties Jazz Age. Arturo preferred leafing through history to dancing the Lindy Hop. With a busy schedule of lectures and meetings, it was a wonder he had time for research or writing. Arturo's articles, essays, and letters to the editor shared what he had learned, facts kept in darkness far too long. He profiled 18th century composer Chevalier de Saint-Georges, a French knight known as the Black Mozart. Saint-Georges was, was a song to Arturo's heart. He also wrote of gladiators, military leaders, and majesty. One article tells of a huge pearl found by an African slave on an island in the Gulf of Panama. The jewel adorned Spanish queens until Napoleon's brother took it to France. Sold to a British duke, the pearl was lost in Buckingham Palace and Windsor Castle, but was recovered each time. The gem's fabled past earned its name, the Peregrinal the Wanderer. Arturo's research pulled him along the triangular trade route, just as surely as wind, currents, and greed carried supplies from Europe to Africa to barter for slaves and took captive Africans to American colonies to grow sugarcane that would be distilled into rum to be sold in Europe. Through the pages of history, Arturo toured the diaspora. His sense of Africana transcended national boundaries. 
heritage for him was braided from many threads. Oturo's most important article was for a survey graphic, The Negro Digs Up His Past, ran in a special issue, Harlem, Mecca of the New Negro. On the contents page, Oturo is listed among the contributors, scholars, and creative geniuses. Schwamberg's words give voice to the ancestors. Their pigment flowed through his pen. Sold. Rumor has it that Schwamberg's wife put her foot down. Either his books or their family must go. Only a threat like that could make him part with his prizes. There were bookstores, bookshelves filled with books all over the house, a family member said, even in the bathroom. The books were carefully cataloged, inventoried in Arturo's head, arranged by size (coughs) and color of binding. But Arturo's library had outgrown private hands. He had turned down a very handsome offer because the collection deserved a wider audience. Arturo had already lent items to libraries and staged exhibitions for schools and community groups. He approached the New York Public Library, but it lacked funds to purchase his vast holdings. So the Carnegie Corporation bought the entire lot for $10,000 and in 1926 donated it to the library. If Harlem was the heart of African-American culture, the 135th Street branch of the New York Public Library was the mine. If the library were a university, its alumni would include the Harlem Renaissance figures who lost themselves amid its stacks and ropes in a quiet room downstairs. Schwamberg's collection, which one newspaper called Matchless, was housed on the third floor and would become the cornerstone of the division of Negro history, literature, and prints. It included more than 5,000 books, 7,000 pamphlets, plus priceless prints and newspapers among them, an autographed first edition of edition of poems by Phyllis Wheatley, The Brilliant Slave Girl. There were handwritten poems by Paul Lawrence Dunbar, letters of heroic general to Solibertio, speeches of slave-turned-statesman Frederick Douglass, Benjamin Banneker's early American almanac, and a 1573 book of poems by Spaniard Juan Latino, perhaps the first printed book by a black person. This university. Arturo Schomburg studied the past, but he did not dwell in it. Quite the opposite. His mission looked to the future. I am proud, said Schomburg, to be able to do something that many mean inspiration for the youth, that may mean inspiration for the youth of my race. After a decade of headaches and nosebleeds, Arturo retired in 1929 from his job at Banker's Trust, but he did not rest. He spent more time writing and researching and tending the collection at the 135th Street Library. On the strength of his reputation as a bibliophile, Arturo was invited to Nashville in 1931 to found this university's library's Negro collection. By 1932, he had added 4,000 volumes to the library's holdings. Lincoln's Bible was the centerpiece. When Arturo first held it, he thought of free blacks from Baltimore who had presented the hefty book to the president during the Civil War. That Bible was a priceless treasure. 
but Arturo did not want black heritage behind glass. He wanted his research to reach students, so he told professors what to teach, include the practical history of the Negro race, from the dawn of civilization to the present time. Then young blacks would hold their heads high and view themselves as anyone's equal. Doctor. After a year at Fisk University in Tennessee, Arturo Schromberg returned to New York. At the public library's 135th Street branch, his treasures were now the core of the Division of Negro History, Literature, and Print. Arturo became the guardian of his collection. His peculiar method of shelving books arranged them by size and color, like a bouquet. In fact, he fired a new librarian for using the standard Dewey Decimal System. The historical figures he unearthed still spoke to him, tell our stories, proclaim our glories. From the, his perch on the library's third floor, Arturo guided researchers, spoke at afternoon teas, and used his own funds to enlarge the collection. Among his gifts, African Venus said, and said Saeed Abdullah classic bronze by French sculpture. Charles Henri Joseph Cordier bought in Paris both pieces had shown in the Louvre in the 1960s. At $50, the stunning pair were of steel. Arturo was not wealthy, but he used the money from the sale of his collection to build on it. When an item was over his budget, he was not ashamed to appeal to friends for funds. He asked a fellow book collector to donate a bronze and marble bust of Shakespearean character Othello, a Moorish general, to put on display. Otero organized exhibitions about Russian literary giant Alexander Pushkin and black Shakespearean actor Ira Aldrich, our pioneers, Otero's weekly column for the Amsterdam News was read all over Harlem. The library staff called Otero Dr. Schramberg, the homegrown historian, had earned that honor. Art. In etchings, prints, paintings, and sculpture, Arturo Stromberg saw not just art, but also an opportunity to offer visible proof of the talent and accomplishments of African descendants. The eye, he supposed, would refute the lie. Arturo was drawn to works showing black subjects, regardless of the artist's skin color, and to works created by black artists regardless of the subject matter. Whether he was collecting the work of Harlem Renaissance painters such as Aaron Douglas and um, Lois Malou Jones, sculptures like Charles Henri Joseph Cordier, or Spanish Baroque artists like Sebastian Gomez and Juan de la Pareja, Arturo embraced and pursued art with the same passion and persistence that he did book buying. Art, he thought, might reach those who would never read a rare book. Fame. Arturo Schromberg had gained respect from Harlem's intellects, but he had yet to trace his own roots, African, Spanish, and Taino-Indian, from the Caribbean to Europe and Africa. So he voyaged across the Atlantic, not to collect, but to connect the dots. I depart now, he said, on a mission of love to recapture my lost heritage. He mined libraries, museums, and rare bookstores for Spain's link in the chain of slavery. He beheld masterworks, 
painted by African hands and marveled at palaces and mosques built by the Arab and African Muslims who ruled Spain for 800 years. These scenes and canvases Oturo styled in his mind's eye. During Spain, France, Germany, and England did not produce answers to all his questions, but Oturo had more than enough facts to take home. This was Schromberg's only trip to Europe and the farthest he would ever travel. No distance was too great to set history straight. The Island Oturo Alfonso Schromberg may have felt kinship with African Americans and their cause of equality and even worked to build pride among them. He may have adopted the anglicized version of his name to author and insisted that his children speak only English and not Spanish, his own mother tongue. But he never lost his love for the Caribbean or his longing for Puerto Rico, the island of his birth. His research took him back to the Caribbean and to Latin America, Haiti, the, little, the Dominican Republic, Panama, and Cuba. Arturo was a bridge between great minds in Havana and Harlem. In 1932, he met Cuban poet Nicolas Guillon and club and with Club Atenas, a group of writers, artists, and scholars who celebrated Cuba's rich and colorful cultural heritage. Most of Arturo's publications focused on the Caribbean and Spain. His first and an article on the Haitian Revolution and Independence. At the, at the 135th Street Library in Harlem, Arturo organized exhibitions of Cuban folklore and literature. But despite his yearnings, he never visited Puerto Rico after 1909. Epitaph, 1938. If this proverb, a book is like a garden, carried in a pocket, is true, then Arturo Alfonso Schromberg, the historian and book collector, had a green thumb and a harvest of pride. There was no field of human endeavor that he did not with his determined hand, that he did not sow with seeds of curiosity, where he did not weave out lies of half-truths, or he did not border with a growing sense of African awareness and heritage. If a book is a garden carried in a pocket, then Schwamberg yielded a bumper crop, blanketed Mount Kilimanjaro's with African violets. Wow, the end, boys and girls, there is a timeline here. Let's go ahead and go over this timeline. In 1874, January 24th, Arturo Schronberg was born in Santurce, Puerto Rico. 1891, April 17th, Schronberg arrives in New York City. In 1892, April 3rd, Schronberg is co-founder of the Las Dos Santillas, a Caribbean independence organization for which he was secretary. Schromberg becomes a mason, joining El Sol de Cuba Lodge Number 38, which is renamed Prince Hall, Prince Hall Lodge Number 38. 1895, June 30th, Schromberg marries Elizabeth Hatcher. They will have three sons, Maximo Gomez, Otero Alfonso Jr., and Kingsley Zarionix. 1896, Schromberg begins teaching Spanish in New York, 1900. Elizabeth Hatcher, Schromberg dies. 1901, Schromberg begins working 
working for the New York law firm Pryor, Mellis, and Harris as a messenger and clerk. 1902, March 17th, Schromberg marries Elizabeth Marotero Taylor. They have two sons, Reginald Stanfield and Nathaniel Jose. 1904, August, Schromberg's article is Haiti Decadent. Is Haiti Decadent appears in the Unique Advertiser. 1905, January 14th, the New York Public Library's 135th Street branch opens in Harlem. 1906, Schromberg takes a job in the mailroom of Bankers Trust Company. He is later promoted to a supervisor. 1911, April 9th, Schromberg joins John Edward Bruce and others to establish the Negro Society for Historical Research. 1912, Schromberg co-edits the Encyclopedia of the Colored Race. 1914, following the death of Elizabeth Taylor Schromberg, Schromberg marries Elizabeth Green. Their family will include three children, Fernando, Dolores Marie, and Placido Carlos. In 1918, Schromberg is elected Grand Secretary of the Prince Hall Grand Masonic Lodge of New York beginning of the Harlem Renaissance, a cultural, social, and artistic explosion. In 1920, December 30th, Stromberg accepts the presidency of the American Negro Academy. In 1925, March, Stromberg's article, The Negro Dips Up His Past, Digs Up His Past, appears in a special issue of the Survey Graphic. May, the 135th Street branch of the New York Public Library begins to develop the Division of Negro History, Literature, and Prints. In 1926, June, the Carnegie Corporation buys Schromberg's collection for $10,000 and donates it to the New York Public Library's Division of Negro History, Literature, and Prints. June, August, Schromberg travels to France, Spain, Germany, and England. 1927, January 20, the Division of Negro History, Literature, and Prints at the New York Public Library, 135th Street Branch, opens to the public. In 1930, January 1st, Schromberg retires from Bankers Trust Company. In 1931, Schromberg serves as curator of the Negro Collection at Fish University Library in Nashville, Tennessee. 1932, on a trip to Cuba, Schromberg meets Cuban artists and writers and acquires materials for the New York Public Library's Division of Negro History, Literature, and Print. From 1932 to 1938, Schromberg serves as a curator of the New York Public Library's Division of Negro History, Literature, and Print. In 1938, June 8, Schromberg dies in Brooklyn, New York. In 1940, October, the New York Public Library's Division of Negro History and Print is renamed the Schromberg Collection Negro history, literature, and prints. In 1972, May, the Schromberg Collection is designated a research library of the New York City, New York Public Library, and becomes the Schromberg Center for Research in Black Culture. In 1980, September, a new Schromberg Center building opens at the 100 at 515 Malcolm X Boulevard in Harlem. Boys and girls, that was the end of Schwamberg. A lot of history there. The Man Who Built a Library. It was written by Carol Boston Weatherford and illustrated by Eric Valesquez. I hope you enjoyed this book. Have a beautiful day, boys and girls. 
and continue listening.